Good morning again. As John mentioned uh, earlier, we had a great weekend. A Friday night and most of the day yesterday, Brother Joe Wells was with our young adult, young families group, and we had we had some some great information Joe shared with us. We had a great time of, of fellowship. We had 30, a little over 30 of our young adults, young families, a lot of kids. We had a, a great deal of help. I'm not going to try and uh, thank everyone because I'll forget somebody. Uh, but I do want to thank our elders for for the foresight, for their willingness to to uh, have have this event happen over the weekend. It was it was such a blessing. For those of you who are aware of of Joe, Joe is in in a lot of your eyes. Joe is first and foremost blessed to be the husband of Aaron O'Hara, the former Aaron O'Hara. Uh, they are the proud parents of four children: Colton, who has as he, he mentioned in class just entered Freed Hardman, and Michaela Camden and Bennett. Joe travels the country. As you may have noticed out here, there are a couple of tables. Joe travels the country on behalf of Kyle Publications, and there's a table set up there with several books out there. Some of those books Joe is the author of. Then he also travels for Freed Hardman University. So if you have any interest in checking out uh, Freed Hardman, there's uh, plenty of information out there as well. Uh, Joe and Aaron also host a podcast called The Hey Joe Show, which is a podcast designed to, to challenge and to encourage families and teens all across the country. Joe has, has served the Lord, served the Lord's church in a public way since 2000 as a, a youth minister, as a pulpit minister, and then in this capacity. They've, they've been doing this, he's been doing this, traveling the country, doing these seminars and men's days and youth rallies and all kinds of things for the last couple of three years. Joe holds a Bachelor of Science along with a completion certificate from the Nashville School of Preaching and Biblical Studies and a Master of Ministry degree from Freed Hardman University. Above and beyond all of that, what I think you'll, you'll see, if you know Joe, you know this. If you don't know Joe, you'll get to see this, that Joe has a heart for the Lord. Joe has a heart for the Lord and for his church, and I believe you will see that in the words that he has to share with us this morning. Morning, church. Tell you what, he did a great job with that. Thank you, Clint. Now, you're like, what did he say? I'd like to meet that guy you just introduced, personally. Now, it is funny, and I do appreciate you beginning off the uh, lesson with, uh, or the introduction with, I am privileged to be the husband of Aaron. And that is true. I tell people about me just a few things uh, without going into the way I introduce myself with kids. I tell people, because he asked, did you say the BBB, right? Big, bald, and beautiful. No, I didn't do that. God has been far better to me than I've ever been to him. And uh, his blessings uh, flow through my family uh, as well. And I'm grateful that you had such a wonderful impact on Aaron. For those of you who don't know, uh, my wife was a teenager here. And there are some very dear friends of the family in this room and some individuals who helped shape her. Um, and thus, I come to you and say thank you, because uh, your shaping of her impacted me, and it impacts our children. So thank you for that. This is a wonderful congregation that is very dear to us, and we have sweet memories. So any chance I have the opportunity that I'm invited to come back, it truly is a privilege to come say hello to folks, to, uh, to see the changes as far as people moving in, uh, individuals who are graduating on to eternity. Um, this is a, a unique place, a good family. 
And I know you know that. It is good to be with you. Let's go to our Father in prayer. And then we're going to get right into this lesson today. Let's go. Dearly Father, Lord, we are so grateful as we bow our heads and come into your presence. We recognize that there's nothing good about us that we deserve to be here. We come before you, Lord, because your son Jesus, he said that we could. And that he said that if we ask in his name that, that you will hear. So we come in the name of Jesus today. Lord, we're grateful for the opportunity to gather together collectively in worship. This has been a rough time for us as far as navigating a pandemic, but also trying to encourage one another to stay closely connected. And, and Lord, I pray for the elders of this congregation, but the elders of your church worldwide, as they continue to navigate something, Lord, that, that there was no precedent for them with other elderships that they got to see. And we pray that you give them wisdom, that you give them courage, that you would give them discernment. Heavenly Father, we know that they want to please you, and, and we pray that you guide them as they walk with you through this. Heavenly Father, we pray that we as your people will be your people, not just in name only, but in action, in deed. Heavenly Father, please help us live as lights in, in understanding a dark culture. Help us, help us to understand that as things continue to change in culture, that, that your calling of us doesn't change. And Lord, I pray for each and every one of my brothers and sisters in this room, those who are joining us online, that we would be your people. Heavenly Father, thank you for the opportunity we have to worship you today. We know that with all of our efforts, Lord, we fall short many times. And, and Lord, I don't know, as, as, as we bow before you today, it's quite possible that some even today in, in this worship assembly, Lord, that our minds and haven't been devoted upon you, that we've been just going through the motions. And Lord, it's, it's our desire that we would be pleasing to you and, and that our worship is acceptable to you. And so, Lord, we pray that you continue to be patient with us. We pray that you receive this worship as a pleasing aroma with our feeble attempts. Heavenly Father, we want to glorify you. As we turn our attention to your word, Lord, it's our prayer that our hearts are ready to receive what we will read, what we will understand, that we will be ready to, to apply to our lives. And, and, Lord, I pray that as the speaker that I stay out of your way and that this is truly about you. Thank you, Lord, for the opportunity we have to study your word today. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. I want to go ahead and invite you to turn in your Bibles to the book of Philippians. I appreciate uh, the reading that came from Philippians chapter 2. And, and we're going to talk a little bit about how all that fits into place today. But, but as we begin, I, I want you and I to think about uh, the... The, the one entity that would make teamwork easier, uh, the one component that would make congregational life easier, the, that would make a husband's and, and wife's relationship easier, or, or parent and child, or, or uh, grandparent and grandchild, whatever it may be in the workforce, there, there are some things that make those relationships and those working relationships yeah, more, more easy, uh, easier to accomplish the task, easier to function within, more of a joy to function within. And, and I want you to think about all the things that you might list. And then I want you to go with me today to the book of Philippians to see what God would say 
regarding what is that one concept that, that if you could write to people who are struggling, if you could write to individuals whose maybe their relationships are strained, what would be your message? What would be your message? And what I want you to understand is that's exactly where we find ourselves with the writing of the book of Philippians. You see, I, I know that to be the case because when you dive into the book of Philippians, you'll notice it's just a short four-chapter book. But in this short four-chapter book, this letter to the church at Philippi, we learn that they were struggling in their relationship. They were struggling getting along. They were struggling in, in figuring out what they were going to do, who they were going to follow. And, and ultimately, it was causing discord that was obviously spilling out beyond just the individuals who were struggling. I can look over at Philippians chapter 4, and what I discover is that there were two sisters, one named Yodia and one named Syntyche, who were not living in harmony. In other words, these two individuals, they had a problem between themselves. But when you read down the, 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 to the chapter to verse 3, what you and I discover is, is that the Apostle Paul wasn't just urging these two Christian sisters to get along. He's turning his attention in verse, verse 3 to the one that he calls my true companion. He says this, Indeed, true companion, I ask you also to help these women who have shared my struggle in the cause of the gospel together with Clement also and the rest of my fellow workers whose names are in the book of life. So when you start kind of dissecting this text, what you've got to understand is that whatever was going on between Euodia and Syntyche, which by the way, sometimes we think that only unfaithful people have problems. Only unfaithful people have disagreements. Because we would look at that and say, well, if they were really wanting to do what was best for God, these two individuals would get along. And I want you to kind of back up from that just a moment. And I want you to notice the description of these two sisters in Christ. These were individuals who shared in the struggle of the gospel with the Apostle Paul. He lumps her, uh, Euodia and Syntyche, in with individuals, one by the name of Clement. Clement would go on to become an early church father, a leader in the early church is, is what is understood by the Clement that he's talking about. So when you hear Yodia and Syntyche and you hear they're having problems, I don't want you to hear only unfaithful people have problems. Church, sometimes faithful people have disagreements. And those disagreements don't make them unfaithful. But in this setting... Those, unfaith, those faithful sisters were not handling this in a manner that was not impacting the rest of the congregation. So when he calls out the true companion, I have to go back to chapter 1 of the book of Philippians to understand that he's not writing this letter to one person. He's writing this letter according to chapter 1 verse 1 to all the saints in Christ Jesus who are in Philippi. So the true companion is believed to be the church. And I understand that we, when we have disagreements, our understanding is, hey, we're supposed to go to that brother, that sister, to try to win them over, to try to work it out. I don't know what the issue is here. We cannot assume that Yodi and Syntyche are wrapped up in sin, that one of them sinned against the other one. We're making a lot of assumptions when we do that. All we know is this, they aren't living in harmony and so the church has to get involved. So I don't know if this is a Euodia sinned against Syntyche or Syntyche sinned against Euodia. I can't read into the text to tell you that. But what I do know is this. We operate oftentimes 
with if you have a disagreement with a brother or sister in Christ, then the brother or sister in Christ need to handle their own disagreements. And that's a good practice. That is a biblical practice. But in this case, there comes a point in time that it's impacting the rest of the church. And so Paul writes to them and says, I need you to get involved. Now what's beautiful about this text is that Paul's writing this not from a place of comfort. He's not writing this letter as if he is sitting, you know, in a comfortable ship, sailing somewhere on his missionary journey. You go back to chapter 1 and what you discover is this, that the Apostle Paul is writing this letter in great concern for a congregation that he loves dearly from a position of inconvenience. And that's putting it lightly because the Bible would say over and over again in chapter 1 that Paul is in prison. You and I can look chapter 1 verse 7. For it is only right for me to feel this way about you all because I have you in my heart since both in my imprisonment and in the defense and confirmation of the gospel you are all partakers of grace with me. If I drop down to verse 12, the Apostle Paul there, chapter 1, verse 12. Now I want you to know, brethren, that my circumstances have turned out for the greater progress of the gospel. If I go over to verse 13, so that in my imprisonment in the cause of Christ has become well known throughout the whole praetorian guard. Verse 14. And that most of the brethren trusting in the Lord because of my imprisonment have far more courage to speak the word of God without fear. If I drop down to verse 17, the Apostle Paul will mention his imprisonment one more time. Now, the reason I bring that out is because I want you to see the heart of the Apostle Paul. Paul is not looking at his own uh, circumstance and dwelling in self-pity. That's a beautiful trait that the Apostle Paul had. No matter what he was going through, his beatings, his imprisonments, his difficulties, the Apostle Paul kept at the forefront of his mind the other person's spiritual needs and the benefit of having Jesus solve the issues that are going on in the lives of people. That's a message that you and I can take home in our own personal lives that sometimes we get wrapped up in our own circumstances and they blind us to the care and concern of other people. Now, I'm not going to suggest that that is a rampant problem. I don't know. I'm just throwing that out there to say sometimes we as God's people need to remember not to get too wrapped up in our own circumstances. The Apostle Paul kept the church at Philippi in mind through his imprisonment. And he has something in store for them that he desperately wants. And this is where when you and I study this book, oftentimes you and I will study it from the key theme of joy. Paul wants them to have joy. And if that's the way that you've studied this, it would be a good study because ultimately joy is at the tip of the, 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 the triangle. It's the pinnacle of the lesson. That's what, that's what Paul wants for them. He wants them to know this concept of joy. As a matter of fact, when you look at joy, just be reminded it's only a four-chapter book. But the word joy or rejoice or the word joy in the original language is found roughly 15 times in this text. It's found in chapter 1 verse 4, chapter 1 verse 18, chapter 1 verse 25, chapter 2 verse 2, chapter 2 17, 2 18, uh, 2 28, 29, 4 10. And you go on down the list and what you're going to find is that it just saturates this book. Now, 
I, I, I don't want to spend much time here, but what I do want you to know is this, that the Apostle Paul, not focusing on his own circumstance, has a desire for the church at Philippi. Their relationship is strained. Yodia and Syntyche is spilling out into the church. And he has a message for them and that's this. I want you to know what joy really is. I want you to know joy in the church. I want you to know a, a concept that is not based upon did something make you happy. You know, sometimes we look at joy and we talk about joy and we talk about circumstantial happiness as if they're in the same category. Do you know that somebody can live what we would observe to be a miserable life here, but still have joy? That, that concept was foreign to me because I always associated joy with happiness. And joy and happiness are not the same. It, it, happiness is when the child wants a certain gift and that morning at Christmas they open that present and they get the present they want. They are happy. But you know what happiness, it's quick to come on when that new toy is there. And guess what happens or somewhere around the afternoon on Christmas regarding their happiness with that toy. It can fade really quickly too. You see, joy is not based upon circumstance. Joy is a condition in life. That really hit home to me when I had the opportunity to travel to Honduras as a college student, went on a medical mission trip. And, and I went because there was an element of kind of self, you know, I wanted to experience that. I knew I would grow through that. But there was also another element of, I knew I wasn't married at the time. You know, this is the time to do this, if I'm going to do this. And we went to Honduras and we operated a medical clinic. Those who had medical experience did. Those of us who were just there, we uh, chiseled out wall, you know, places in the walls to put in showers. Or we built uh, a portion of a church building because uh, the mudslides had destroyed much of that area. We played with the children uh, as a way to interact and hopefully show them what Christians uh, are or how we interact with people. But I'll never forget driving in our school bus through the town, I noticed that there were uh, cardboard shacks. And I mentioned this yesterday, uh, literally cardboard shacks that were pieced together with children running around and I, I began to sink, literally to sink and to feel some guilt about how good we have it in life. And there was a young lady who was on that mission trip with us and she noticed and she and I started talking about it and, and her comment to me was, Joe, the reason that you feel sorrow for them is because you think they need to live like you in America in order to be happy, in order to have joy. And her comment was, they don't know what they miss when they don't live like Americans. And the idea that she was reading into it was, your perspective is why you feel such sorrow. But they, in their condition, have great joy that somebody's coming along and, hey, they get to live in something that's other than a, a cardboard shack. It's a cinder block building that's somewhere around 10 foot by 10 foot, and they will probably shove 10 people in there. It's got a dirt floor, but they're happy. They're joyful because that's what they know. The reason I tell you that is this, because when Paul writes to the church at Philippi, he's not saying, my prayer for you is that you would be happy. He's wanting them to know joy.
And church, I would offer this to you today. God never promised you happy. And I know that what the, the Sermon on the Mount with the Beatitudes and the word blessed, and I know that that word can be translated as happy, but I will tell you this, happiness is a response to circumstance. Joy becomes a deeper condition of who you are. God wants you to know joy today. God wants you to know joy in your marriage. God wants you to know joy in your relationships with your parents and with your grandparents. God wants you to know joy as a condition not as a result of, of, of a gift or a result of circumstance. It's the concept of how can somebody, when they go to the hospital and they hear the news that they've got cancer and that they've got six months to live, how can someone who receives such news still have joy? It's because their joy is not based upon their health. Their joy is not based upon the doctor's report. Their joy is rooted in something else. And that's what this letter deals with. So when you study the book of Philippians from the concept of joy, that's not a bad thing. But what I want you to know today, if you'll allow me maybe a, an elementary illustration. I'm big into let's, let's boil this down and make it where we can leave and we can remember this and we can take it and do something. So this morning we're going to build an ice cream sundae. Maybe a banana split, okay? Let's do a banana split. Kids, is that okay, a banana split? Let's do a banana split. And here's what I want you to know about our banana split. Joy is that red cherry that goes on top of the, the banana split, okay? If you only wanted the red cherry, if you came to me and I said, hey, we're going to have banana splits, and here's the deal, you're you all excited yes Mr. Joe's going to give us banana splits and then I give you a styrofoam bowl with one red cherry in it you would feel disappointed you would almost look at me like that's crazy even we in Idaho know that's not a banana split Joe okay that's just a cherry and so this morning what I want you to think about in this banana split I want you to think about that there's got to be something for that cherry to sit upon and what that cherry sits upon, the ice cream of this particular Sunday that we're building, is the concept of fellowship. Now here's what's beautiful about all three of these layers. All three of these layers saturate these four chapters. And the reason I know that they're significant is because the Apostle Paul will refer to them over and over and over again. The word fellowship occurs in chapter 1 verse 5. Chapter 1, verse 7. Chapter 2, verse 1. Chapter 3, verse 10. Chapter 4, verse 14. And chapter 4, verse 15. You say, Joe, I couldn't write them down. The point was not for you to write those down. I'll give them to you afterwards. But what I want you to understand is this. It occurs in chapter 1, 2, 3, and 4. You don't have to be a, a biblical Greek scholar to walk away and go, Huh, he said that a lot. That must be important. Kind of like men, when your wife tells you something over and over again, even though she may not explicitly have said something, and you walk away and say, well, I never heard you say it. And she scratches her head in disbelief. She says, I told you five times. Yeah, but you didn't explicitly. She's like, I told you. The idea is this. Sometimes the biblical writers, they tell us what the main themes are. And in this particular case, the reality is this. Paul drives home a point. I want you to know joy that goes beyond circumstantial happiness. But if you're going to have that level of joy, then you've got to have a level of fellowship that you don't have right now.
And that fellowship concept is more than a meal. Look, I like fellowship meals as the rest of you do. And you look at me and you're like, Joe, we can tell you did not have to say that. But the truth is this, we can eat a meal together and never truly have fellowship. Right? You can, you can eat a meal with somebody today and never really have fellowship. Because fellowship is not the same as visiting. We can visit with total strangers. As a matter of fact, in certain settings, you go to restaurants, that I've been to some, that they have family-style dining. And you literally sit at tables with people that you do not know. Or you might go to a particular restaurant where the guy comes out and he's got the, the, the skillet there and he's flipping you know, eggs and rice and you know, doing all this. And you're sitting around a, a table with people that you don't know. If fellowship is only eating a meal with people, then you're in fellowship with total strangers. But here's what's, what we need to understand today. It's this. Just because in the church we eat meals together doesn't mean we're in fellowship with one another. Because fellowship involves intent. Fellowship involves action. Fellowship involves purpose. And when you really look at this text, it's beautiful to see the way that the English translation can kind of open our eyes to what biblical fellowship really is in the book of Philippians. Look, if you will, over at chapter 1, verses 3, 4, and 5. I want you to consider this concept and just see how your English translation will translate the Greek word. Verse 3, I thank my God in all my remembrance of you, always offering prayer with joy in my every prayer for you all, in view of your, and then whatever word comes there, is the Greek word koinonia, in view of your participation in the gospel from the first day until now. That's what the New American Standard translates koinonia, participation in. The concept that if you drop down to verse 7, the Bible reads this way, for it is only right for me to feel this way about you all, because I have you in my heart, since both in my imprisonment and in the defense and confirmation of the gospel, you are all koinonia. So I don't know what, what your English translation has there. My translation, the New American Standard, uses the word partakers. Partakers of grace with me. If I go over to chapter 2, verse 1... That's where I see the concept of an English translation of fellowship. But when I continue to turn the page over to chapter 4, verses 14 and verse 15, the English translation is not participation, it's not partaker, and it's not fellowship. It is the word share, or what you shared with me. So when you take all of those English translations and you put them together to formulate a concept, fellowship involves not just passiveness, but act active. It involves intent. It would be the concept of you see me pulling a rope and on the other end of the rope is a heavy load. And if I'm pulling the rope, you in fellowship with me you put your shoulder to the rope and we both pull. But fellowship with me is not where you see me pulling the rope and you stand back and say, Joe, what are you doing? Man, it looks like you got a heavy load there. Well, I hope you get it over there. That's not fellowship. 
And fellowship is not discussing it, right? Fellowship is not when you see me putting my shoulder to it and you go, you know, Joe, I, you know, back when I used to do that, I had to do it this way. And you start, you start coaching the guy on how to pull the rope. Or it's this. Man, it looks like a heavy load in the back. What, what, what burden are you, you carrying? What, what, what are you doing? Now, none of that is evil, but it's not fellowship. Fellowship is where you put your shoulder to the rope and pull in the same direction. Because the other side of that is some people tie a rope to the load and they say, nope, I think we need to go this way. And you got one brother pulling that way and another brother pulling this way. And guess what happens? The load never moves. Or else they'll get so tired of it, they just say, you know what, I'm fed up with this, I'm dropping my rope. And they quit. Now, in this text, Paul says, I want you to know joy. I want you to know joy. But before you're going to know joy, you've got to have fellowship, church, in Philippi. Before you're going to have a a state of joy, you've got to have a connectiveness. You've got to have a participation You've got to have that blood, sweat, and tears for the same cause, for the same reason, in the same direction. And the the difficult part of making application in this way is this. If I don't have fellowship, then we don't have joy. If I choose to not engage, then that will impact my relationship with the body of Christ. And there are some individuals, look, some individuals who have put themselves out there in the past and they've been hurt. There have been individuals who've made themselves vulnerable in the past. Perhaps they did get involved, but they got their hands slapped by somebody. And so their attitude is, that's it. I'm done. I'm just going to show up to worship. Can I please tell you something? That you can show up to worship and worship God, but still not be in fellowship with your brethren. And I got something else to tell you. That your relationship to God is impacted by your relationship with your brethren. That's one of those, that's one of those concepts that... We don't bring up much because even where we're at, you got people that'll sit on opposite sides of the building and they'll not talk to each other because there's maybe a grudge that's being held. And they'll say, well, we're just going to worship in the building together. I'm going to worship God. They're going to worship God, but we're not going to have fellowship with one another. And at the end of the day, they leave feeling good because they worship, but they need to understand that the relationship that I have with my brethren impacts my relationship with God. To withhold forgiveness... To withhold or not seek forgiveness is a spiritual problem. And that impacts my relationship with God. To not want to to rectify a situation, to resolve so that we can mutually encourage each other, be in fellowship toward joy. That's a spiritual problem. And so Paul says this, in the midst of a congregation that's struggling, don't forget, they're struggling. He says, if you're going to know joy then you've got to know fellowship. So the fellowship in our ice cream sundae is the ice cream. Joy is the cherry. Fellowship is the ice cream. Like-mindedness would be our bananas. Okay, so now I made you all hungry for dessert. Feel free to eat dessert before lunch today. You have my permission. Your parents said, no, you don't, right? But the idea is this. Think of it as the base. Think of it as the foundation. 
If you're going to have biblical joy, then you must have biblical fellowship. And if you're going to have biblical fellowship, then you must have like-mindedness. That concept is the Greek word phreneo. Phreneo occurs multiple times in the New Testament. As a matter of fact, it occurs 26 times in the New Testament. In 26 times of all the New Testament books, 10 times it is found in the book of Philippians. And it's found in chapter 1 verse 7, chapter 2 verse 2, chapter 2 verse 5, chapter 3 verse 10, chapter 3 verse 19, chapter 4 verse 2, and 4 verse 10. Again, I just want you to understand, it saturates the text. And so if the Apostle Paul thought it enough by inspiration of the Holy Spirit to say, hey, this is an important word, then it ought to be an important word for us to understand what it means. And so what he says to them over in chapter 1, towards the the end of chapter 1, he says, verse 27, "...only conduct yourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ." So that whether I come and see you or remain absent, I will hear of you that you are standing firm in the one spirit with one mind, striving together for the faith of the gospel. I appreciate what the brother said who directed our thoughts for the Lord's Supper. Thank you for that. But one of the things that he said that, that I, it stuck out in my mind was a lack of worthiness on our part. We didn't deserve the death of Jesus. We didn't deserve God's gift of grace. We don't deserve that now. And so every time we partake of the Lord's Supper, for me, in my mind, as I personally reflect, it is a continual reminder that there is nothing within me that deserved that, that that is a gift of God that I need not take for granted. But when I read passages like this, and this is not the only place you'll find these these phrases, you'll also find it over in Ephesians chapter 4, but the concept is this, conduct yourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel. And I ask, how can a congregation conduct themselves in a manner worthy of the good news of the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ? And I say, In and of ourselves, there's no way. Because you can't be good enough to be worthy of the gospel. Your walk is not perfect. You're not Jesus. Therefore, you still stand in need of the grace of God and forgiveness. So it's not that in and of yourself you're going to get it right. So how can we walk in a manner that's worthy? And that's what's beautiful about Bible study. Is that all you got to do is keep reading. Because he will explain what he means in that context. And in this context, what he does is he says, I want to hear that you're standing firm in one spirit with one mind, striving together for the faith of the gospel. He says, when you do that, your enemies, those who oppose you, they will will see that. And not only will they see that, but God will be glorified when God's people stand united in such a manner as described in Philippians chapter 1 and verse 27. But it's always stuck out to me. He says, standing together with one spirit, with one mind, striving together for the faith of the gospel. And here's what stands out to me. If we're to have one spirit and one mind, whose mind are we going to use? Whose spirit are we going to use? Because oftentimes we've got to stop and ask, does God not know that we're all different, we're all unique? 
He created us unique. Some of us are right-minded people. Some of us are left-minded people. And then some of us, we're still questioning what minded we are, right? But the idea is this. We think, we process a little differently. Individuals who might be prone to compassion, they may not see the, the X's and O's, the A plus B plus C, like the individual who's prone to maybe a more statistical, logical way of thinking. Now what's beautiful is in the Lord's church, we need both. You've got to have the, the logical driven to A plus B plus C equals D. But you've got to have also the person who sees beyond that and sees the hurt and is able to empathize, not just sympathize, but empathize with people. You've got to have both. But if God made us different, then how are we to ever come together with one mind? I think it's interesting because when you really start asking that question, that's the, the crux of, of how we're going to build this banana split today. Well, are we supposed to use the preacher's mind? Whatever the preacher thinks. I love Richard. I, I love your ministers. But I will offer this to you. The Bible doesn't say that the church is supposed to use the preacher's mind. I love your elders. You've got good elders. But the Bible doesn't say here to use the elder's mind. So what does it say? Well, I want to start off by, first of all, showing you the impact and the impression that Paul really intended was for them not to just come together on the same conclusions. Hey, we talked about it, we worked it out in a business meeting, and this is the conclusion that we have reached. That's not what this text means. This text doesn't mean that we brainstormed and came to a conclusion. As a matter of fact, he'll go on to say, you can see there chapter 2 verse 2, that he wants his joy to be made complete by being of the same mind, maintaining the same love, united in spirit and intent on one purpose. What's beautiful about that is the same mind and the one purpose, that falls under the concept of phreneo. But what is phreneo? You see the English translation, but sometimes the Greek allows itself to be better understood in word pictures. So if you, if you define it by the dictionary, you really miss some of the Greek concept with that. Our English language is a very dictionary-defined language, but sometimes you're better off with a, 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 a picture. So let me give you a picture today. When I first started in preaching, I, got, I started in youth and family work. I transitioned to the pulpit. It was in a congregation in Columbia, Tennessee. And I was in a congregation with some really good people. They were patient with me. I had never preached before. I was making that transition. And they were wonderful people. But they were also people who loved to joke and to pick at you. So for instance, on my tryout Sunday, the, the time that I went there, I preached my heart out. I go to the back and there was an older gentleman who pretends to be an usher, right? You know what that means, right? They pretend to usher people to their seats. Really, they're modern day security guards. Uh, Mike was going to have to hit him with his cane if something were going to happen, right? But Mike was also there to pick at the preacher. I'm convinced he thought that was his goal. And the more I got to know him, the more I knew that was his way of showing me that he cared. I got to the back on the day of my tryout sermon and Mike asked me, he said, Son, Mike was much older than I was. Son, was that the best you can do? I thought, who says that? First of all. But I also wanted to answer it in a respectful manner. So I said, yes, sir. That, I said, I did everything I, I could do. I poured everything into it. He said, well, that's all God can ask of you. 
I left there not knowing what was going to happen. If that was the way they were going to respond, right? They ended up being patient with me, bringing me on. But these guys also would stay in the back. We had what was called a circle of wisdom. They were the old guys who were solving all the problems going on in the world, right? And I just stood there and I listened. They called me preacher. I didn't have a name. When you preach, sometimes you don't have a name. You're just preacher, right? Preacher, right? Anyhow, one day Mike came up to me and showed me a quarter. And on the back of it, it had a horse. You know those quarters that represent the states, and I had made a comment about owning horses. I used to own horses, but then Aaron and I had children, and I like being married, so I sold my horses. Um, but he asked me, he said, uh, what kind of horse is on the back of that quarter? And I studied it. I was still trying to be you know, intellectual with him. I said, Mike, I don't know. He goes, Joe, it's a quarter horse. That's who I was dealing with, okay? So there were occasions where I would walk to the back and maybe I went over five minutes, maybe I went over ten minutes, whatever it was. Mike was always going to have a comment. So one day he came up to me and said, Preacher, you went a little long today, didn't you? I said, Mike, I just figured you need a little extra Jesus today. All right? So, we had the, so I was going to sneak into that auditorium one day and I was going to reset all the clocks. I was going to turn it back 15 minutes. Nobody looks at it anyway unless they're bored, right? So I was going to turn it back... 15 minutes, so when I got done, I would go to the back and it would be on time or maybe even a little early. But they changed that clock out with what's called an atomic clock. Now, if you know anything about atomic clocks, atomic clocks, you set it to a time zone and there's some frequency, some signal that is sent from some other place that takes man's error out of it, supposedly, right? So not only did they change that clock out in the building with an atomic clock, they changed every clock in the building out with an atomic clock. You talk about getting the point, right? Time management or at least time awareness maybe is what they were going for. But either way, what I noticed about those clocks is that when you set them to the time zone, that they all ticked on the same hour, they all ticked on the same minute, and they all ticked on the same second. If I could give you a dictionary definition of what phroneo means, it's that. And that's why we look at it and we say, there's no way that happens. And I would say, yes, there is. And when it happens, it's beautiful. I show you a baseball diamond, not to belittle the point. But if you've ever seen a baseball team that understands being on the same page, you understand the beauty And if you've ever seen a baseball team that's not on the same page, chances are you've seen a Little League baseball team, right? But when a ball is hit to left field, everybody has something to do. They don't just stand around and look at it and go, huh, hope the left fielder really gets that. I mean, after all, the center fielder's got to go over and back him up. The shortstop's got to go out for the cutoff. And since the shortstop went out for the cutoff, the second baseman's got to go to second base. The right fielder really should run up and prepare himself for a throw that goes to second that might get away, so he backs up the throw to second base. The pitcher will back up a throw to the shortstop until the runner circles first base, of which then, as long as he clears second, the first baseman is supposed to cover the pitcher's mound and the pitcher is supposed to leave to back up a throw to the catcher. The catcher cannot abandon his base, neither can the third baseman because the, the runner is running around the base. But here's what's beautiful. When a ball is hit to left field on a team that understands like-mindedness, everybody has something to do. And when a team that doesn't understand Freneo, the ball's hit to left field, people stand around and go, man, I hope he gets it in. Ball wasn't hit to me, so I really don't have anything to do. 
And I would say this, some churches operate like those baseball teams. If you don't believe that, ask your education deacon. I don't even know who he is. As he scrambles to find teachers, an individual say, well, that ball wasn't hit to me. Or the benevolence deacon, the ball wasn't hit to me. Or those who might put together events for ladies, the ball wasn't hit to me. Some congregations function that way. And you know what? I don't know the ins and outs of everything going on in Philippi. But it sounds like some of that possibly could have been going on in Philippi. So he says this, I need you to have like-mindedness if you're going to have fellowship. And if you want to have joy, then you better get fellowship and like-mindedness right. So the question is, whose mind were they supposed to use? This is probably one of the most quoted texts in all of the Bible. But sometimes we don't study it in context. You see, the answer to whose mind were they supposed to use is answered down in verse 5 and following of chapter 2 when the Bible says this, Have this attitude in yourselves. Or some of your translations will say, Have this mind. Have this attitude in yourselves, which was also in Christ Jesus who although he existed in the form of God, did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped. But he emptied himself, taking the form of a bondservant, and being made in the likeness of men, being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. You see, there's something about this book that you may not have known yet. It's a... It's a motif, it's a theme, and it's said to be others above self. The Apostle Paul would allude to that in chapter 1, verses 21 and following, when he said, For me to live is Christ and to die is gain. But if I am to live on in the flesh, I will, it will mean fruitful labor for me, and I do not know which to choose. I'm hard-pressed in both directions, having the desire to depart and be with Christ, for that is very much better. In other words, he said this, I just assume go ahead and die but it's not beneficial for you if I die. So I'll choose to continue on. In the book of Philippians, there's something called the others above self motif. And that saturates this as well. So when we read about Jesus and we read about His attitude and we read about His mindset, it should not surprise us that the Apostle Paul all along has been saying, look, if you want to have joy, you've got to have fellowship. But if you're going to have fellowship, you've got to have like-mindedness. How do I have like-minded? You let Jesus set your clock. You get out of His way. You say, what do you mean by let Him set my clock? Well, I need to look at Jesus. What was His attitude? What was His approach? And here was His approach. He emptied Himself. He did not regard his state as something that was to be held on to, but he became a bondservant. He became obedient to, to God, even to the point of death on the cross. And the Bible says this, that attitude of emptying yourself, of putting others' needs above your own, that is what God not just desires, He expects from us. And when we do that, congregational joy will occur. But guess what else? When we do that, marital joy will occur too.
can't tell you how many times I've counseled husbands and wives who come into the office and they, their reaction is this, when she gets it together, we'll be happy. Or when he gets it together, we'll be happy. And at the end of the day, you just want to look at him and say, your approach is totally wrong. Look, I don't know if he cheated. I don't know all the things that occurred. But what I do know is this. You cannot fix him and he cannot fix you. What I do know is God's answer is become more like Jesus in yourself. And that's all you can do to bring joy to the situation. Church, I don't know where you stand today as a body. I, I assume you, this is, this is one of those things you look at and you say, Hey, we got the banana split, Joe. We understand it. As a matter of fact, we walk away and we have that joy, we have that fellowship, and we have that like-minded. I don't know where you are in your marriages. I don't know where you're at in your relationships at work. I, I, don't, I just don't know. But what I do know is this. All of us during the singing of an invitation song, we have the opportunity to evaluate what we've studied today. And it's my prayer that we will not sing a song just to move on to the next thing. But in the singing of this song, we will truly ask ourselves, does Jesus set my clock? If the answer is no, a public repentance may be in play. It may be one of those things that your wife, your children, your husband, your, your spouse, your relatives, that, that everybody knows that you haven't been letting Jesus set your clock. It's been very public and it's time to change that. It's time to repent. But it also may be one of those things that you can go home and dedicate your life to forever letting Jesus set your clock. I just know this much, that during the singing of this invitation song, we all have the opportunity to evaluate. And I pray that you will use this opportunity to do just that. If you've never obeyed the gospel, the gospel invitation is always open. God sent Jesus, the Father sent Jesus to die on the cross so that you and I could be redeemed. We could have redemption. We could know joy, that we could know peace, that we could know forgiveness. And I will tell you this, you cannot have, have strayed so far that the blood of Jesus can't forgive you. He's stronger than that. He's bigger than your sin. And He wants to forgive you today. So He says this, he offers forgiveness for all those who will faithfully submit to His will. To enter into covenant with Him by confessing Jesus as Lord, repenting of your sins and being baptized, immersed for the forgiveness of your sins, raised to walk in newness of life. You will be entered into covenant with God and you will know joy and peace like you've never known. Today He offers that to you. If you've never obeyed the gospel, why not do it today? If we can help you in any way with the prayers with walking with you, with studying with you, or by assisting you in, in your obedience. We, we want to do that, and we invite you to make that need known by coming forward as together we stand and sing.